You only have two more weeks of trying to restrain your dancing. We are in uh, week six for us of this Kingdom and Culture series where we have been examining what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus, as citizens of the Kingdom of Heaven, to live as residents of Canada. And what it looks like when, when the values of the kingdom sometimes line up, sometimes don't line up with the values of the culture around us. We've been operating on, on two kind of basic definitions of kingdom and culture. Kingdom being where God is present and life is lived His way. And culture being the way we do things around here. And sometimes they line up, sometimes they're in conflict, sometimes there's a rub, and we need to learn to talk about it and work through it? How can we be shaped by the words and the way of Jesus and not solely shaped by the culture around us? So far, we've had some really interesting conversations about identity, about sex, about gender, about goodness. Last week, we talked about cancel culture and Dave Chappelle. And this week, we're talking about women. Women and worth, we're going to call this one. Women in our culture face a barrage of conflicting messages, so I hear. Not being a woman myself, I'm not an expert on the issue. But the conflicting messages of, of you have to have a fulfilling career, but also the pressure to raise a family. The, the conflicting message of, of to love your body the way it is, but also you know, the messaging of you need to look like a model. You need to look certain ways. The, the messaging of be independent and confident, but don't intimidate men by you know, being so strong and there's other words for it. Be sensitive to others, but don't be too emotional. Stand up for women's rights, but don't be one of those crazy feminists. It's what's on the inside that counts, but at the same time, show some skin. We have all kinds of messaging that our culture gives women about who they're supposed to be. That if you aren't, uh, if you aren't advocating for uh, certain feminist ideas, then you are stuck in the stone ages. And if you are staying at home and trying to raise a family and not having a career, then you're not doing enough to push the liberation of women far enough forward. We read a, a portion of an article a few weeks ago that came out of uh, the New York Times. An article that's called Why Sex-Positive Feminism is Falling Out of Fashion, where um, the, the author, Michelle Goldberg, is examining this idea that there's a movement among feminists who are, who are seeing the way that feminism has gone and saying that it might actually be hurting the cause that it has been trying to make. This is part of the, uh, the article where she's quoting another author in this, and, and I know it sounds confusing here, but we'll, we'll read through it. In March, Vox's Rebecca Jennings reported on the spread of the canceled porn movement on TikTok. Jennings quoted the caption of one TikTok video that said, liberal feminism is telling young girls that hookup culture is liberating, conditioning them to think that if you don't have extreme kinks at a young age, then they're both boring and vanilla, and encourage them to get into sex work the minute they turn 18. 
This is highlighting the way that some in certain strands of the feminist movement have been encouraging, but goes on later to say somehow this sex positivity went mainstream and fused with a culture that is shaped by pornography and attention to emotion got lost. Sex positive feminism became a cause of some of the same suffering it meant to remedy. What she's really getting at in this article is, is that there are movements within feminism that, that is promoting using sexuality as a form of liberation, but in fact, in the kind of cultural climate we're in, so fueled by pornography and, and viewing women more objectively, that it's actually feeding into a demeaning view of women more than it's actually helping. How do we, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, affirm the equality and value and dignity and worth of women from a biblical foundation, rather than following the streams and the ebbs and flows of of different movements that we see in our culture and get swung in with the, the cultural pendulum swing that takes place. We need a stronger foundation. Let me, let me give you kind of a glimpse of where we are going today. We're going to talk about these kingdom foundations, so to speak, on this issue. Things that we've been highlighting over the last several weeks. First of all, that humans are created in God's image. This has been a common theme for us, for us through this series and is a foundational thing for us to understand moving forward. That both women and men are equally the image of God. That because of sin in our world, things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so they're not fully living up to God's design and intention. We do see that the image of God is seen most fully in Jesus. And Jesus restores all things for the better. This is a bit of a roadmap of where we're going to go today. So let me take us back to Genesis 1. First book of the Bible where God in His creation of humanity says something very profound. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in poetic form, it goes on to say, So God created humankind in His image, In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. There is something profound about how God creates humanity in the image of God. If you've been sitting in this series, you've heard this over and over and over, and I hope it gets hammered into your brains to a way where it's always there. That there is something unique about human beings. That God creates us in His image to represent Him on earth, to rule with Him over His creation in His way, like He says, over the the fish of the sea and birds of the air, etc., etc. But also, God, when He creates humanity in His image, He creates both men and women in His image. That maleness and femaleness are both equally part of the image of God and the way that we reflect and represent our Creator on earth. Then, 
we read in the story in Genesis that things change. You know, if, if you've heard the story of Adam and Eve and eating the fruit, being deceived by the serpent, and sin enters the world, there's something that happens when sin comes into the world that corrupts God's good creation. And all of a sudden, this, this relationship of equality between men and women as both created in the image of God, we start to see that fracture. In fact, God, after the, the, the fruit is eaten, after the sin has been committed and sin enters the world, God goes and He kind of spells out, this is, this is going to be the reality of life for you now that sin is entered and is corrupting creation. And part of what He says is this. In Genesis 3.16, He says this to the woman. Your desire will be for your husband and He will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and He will rule over you. This is not God's design or intention or how He created humanity to work. But this is God spelling out, now that sin is in the world, now that our hearts and creation have been corrupted by sin, this is going to be part of the reality moving forward. That whether it's because the fact that women become much more vulnerable in bearing children and caring for young ones who are dependent on them physiologically for life, they're not able to protect themselves in the same way. That men, in their freedom of movement that they have in not being the ones whose bodies are required to carry and to sustain children, are able to use that freedom, to use that power, to use their, their greater size physiologically, corrupted by sin, to be not partners, but rulers. And we see this play out throughout history. Generation after generation, the consequences of sin getting played out. Where the presence of sin has solidified in societies this, this tendency where living as a woman, you are seen as lesser than or you are seen as property, whereas as men, you were the rulers. You were the ones who were seen as smart and intelligent and able to make decisions where women were seen as less than. Let me give you some very influential examples from two heavy hitter philosophers. Aristotle and Plato were both ancient Greek philosophers. And they shaped much of how the West thinks about the world. Both of them, when they talk about men and women, this is what they have to say. Aristotle says, the relation of male to female is by nature a relation of superior to inferior and ruler to ruled. These are the major thinkers that have helped shape Western civilization. Plato, though Plato advocated for the education of women, he says, you, can you think of any human activity in which the male is not superior to the female? All the feminists in the room are like, okay then. Even on PEI, it was 1922 before the first woman could vote. It was 100 years ago tomorrow. Not tomorrow. Next year. You know what I mean. 1926, before in Canada a woman was legally considered a person. You could vote before you were a person. 
1964, before a woman could open a bank account without a man signing with her. We see these things played out in society throughout the generations until very, very recently. And we've seen more modern women's liberation movements that have advocated and fought for women to be seen as equal. Despite the the kind of more intense movements within feminism that we talked about earlier, despite the way that this kind of patriarchal structure has been played out in societies, Jesus shows us a better way. Jesus of Nazareth, who lived in the first century, 2,000 years ago, in the midst of a very patriarchal society, shows us how the image of God is reflected in how we treat women with dignity. Let me give you some examples, okay? In John 4, we see a very clear example of how Jesus respectfully spoke to women in public. This is the story of the woman at the well, if you remember. And Jesus meets this Samaritan woman who's had five husbands, and now she's living with a guy who she's not even married to. And though she would be seen as the kind of immoral outlier in society, Jesus speaks to her with dignity. We see Jesus valuing the health of women. In Mark chapter 5, this this is like a, uh, uh, a chapter where we have both the story of Jesus raising a woman from the dead, And also, Jesus healing a woman who has had a condition where she's been bleeding for 12 years. And the text even says that she has suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. This was her story. Jesus was a man who who wasn't trying to take anything from her, who longed for her to be made well and was able to heal her. Last week, we read the story in John chapter 8 of how Jesus defended a woman against injustice with the woman who was caught in adultery. We read about Jesus being friends with women. We, we read about Jesus being close friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We, we read John 11 when the story where where Lazarus dies, it's interesting how it even says that Jesus loved Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. That even like Martha and Mary are higher up on the list than Lazarus. Jesus welcomed women into discipleship. Again with Mary and Martha, when he's at their house, he has this moment where he says, Mary has chosen the better portion. Martha's in the kitchen. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet learning. And Jesus says to Martha, Listen, leave leave the kitchen stuff. What's better is for you to sit and to learn from the teacher. He invites women into discipleship. Jesus taught men to treat women with dignity. In his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he has two sections right after each other. One about lust, saying that if you look at a woman with lust as a sexual object, you're committing adultery. You you are sinning by not seeing her as the image of God. Follows that with a teaching on divorce where he says, men, you can't just dismiss a woman and divorce her like was common in their society for whatever reason. You know, she's, she's not pleasing you. She's not feeding you. You know, it's a bad supper. You can get rid of her. Instead, he narrows the window and says, 
actually to divorce, there are very few ways where that should be considered. That a woman can't be sent out in the streets without livelihood or protection on a whim. Jesus ministered with women. We read in Luke 8 and Matthew 12 about how Jesus taught that those both his, uh, those who did his will, who worked with him in proclaiming the kingdom, are his mothers and brothers and sisters. Jesus saw women as the image of God, just the same as men. We don't see him demeaning them, treating them as lesser than, in how he, he works and acts and talks to them throughout his life despite that being the norm in the culture that he was part of. And Jesus not only treated women with dignity as the image of God, but we read that Jesus reversed the curse of the fall, where the good news is that that Jesus frees women from having to be ruled, like we read in Genesis chapter 3. That, that curse, those consequences of sin where your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, Jesus on the cross takes upon himself the curse of humanity so that men and women can be freed from it. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 2. This is in the story where uh, the disciples are in uh, a room praying together. And the Holy Spirit comes down and fills all of them. And they're all like, what on earth is going on? And Peter, he he steps up and he explains what's going on. And he's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel. He says this, quoting Joel, that in the last days God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they will prophesy. What Peter is making connections for and realizing is that God's promise of what He wants to do in redeeming humanity isn't just for the men who were you know, those who were esteemed religiously in their culture, but both for men and women. Both men and women can receive what Jesus offers them on the cross. Both men and women can be filled with the Spirit of God that Jesus sends. And we read later in Acts chapter 8, Philip, who's one of the disciples who was preaching about the resurrected Jesus, it says, But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, this may seem unimportant, but I think it's significant to mention that both men and women were baptized in this situation. It's significant because baptism for us is the the outward expression of being welcomed in to God's family, to being part of God's people. Both men and women were brought into the family. This is in contrast to what we read in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant about if you were to be part of God's family, the outward expression of you being brought in is that you had to be circumcised. 
Only men could bear that outward expression. I don't know how outward it was. Of being brought into the family of God. Circumcision was the way of saying, I am part of God's people. It was a gruesome way. Baptism's a whole lot easier. And baptism, you don't have to be a man. Both men and women can be baptized and brought into the family. That God's family, His covenant, is not just meant for men, but men and women together. So we read in Galatians chapter 3, Paul expanding on this idea. He says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To Jesus, whether you are a man or a woman, is is irrelevant in terms of you being welcomed into his family, in terms of you being given the grace that he bought for us on the cross. Doesn't mean there's not distinctions between men and women. Doesn't mean that the image of God isn't beautiful in how it's gendered in male and female. Doesn't mean that we just kind of blend and blur the lines. But what it means is that gender is no longer a barrier to being welcomed in. If you remember the temple in the Old Testament, there was an outer court that anyone could come into. You were a tourist to Jerusalem. You weren't Jewish. You weren't really interested in following this religion. You could come to the outer courts. You could see the sites. You could check it off your you know, list of sites to see in Jerusalem. And then women could only go so far. If you were a Jewish woman, you could only go so far in. And then there was a court just for men. The ones who were circumcised. The ones who would go in on behalf of their family. In the new covenant. In the new relationship between God and humanity that Jesus Jesus created for us on the cross. There's no longer this distinction of Jewish or non-Jewish, you can only get so far. Male or female, you can only get so far. All are welcome. What about women in leadership? This has been a debate uh, in the church for centuries. Uh, And it's been a difficult debate because of passages in the New Testament that seem to indicate that, that women shouldn't hold positions of authority in the church in the same way that qualified men do. And I don't want to talk about this issue with like and like dance around the elephant in the room where that is a major issue for a lot of people in understanding the equality of women in the church. So we're going to look at, uh, in our remaining... 15 minutes, the most complicated passage in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor in the book of, or in the book of, in the city of Ephesus. 
And he's talking to him, writing to him about false teaching that's taking place in the church in Ephesus. That's the whole purpose of the letter. And, and this is part of what he writes. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. If you're wearing jewelry today, you can go home. I'm just kidding. Now, taken in the most negative way, we could see this as being discriminatory towards women, but but what, the heart of what Paul is saying here is that women of God, it is not our... It, our lives are not meant to find our, our value and our identity and to show off in how we look. Who we are as as followers of Jesus, isn't about looking the best or the flashiest or showing off our appearance. Rather, what we should be known for is our good deeds and how we live and how Christ is reflected in our way of living. Then he goes on to say, in the really controversial part, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Let's keep reading. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became the sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What a passage. We can't get into all the depths of this, but, but I do want to address this passage as part of our conversation today. We can, you can duke it out in small groups later this week. When Paul talks about a woman should learn in quietness and not assume authority and teach, we need to understand that we are reading a letter written to a people at a time, that we are in some ways hearing one side of a, of a telephone conversation. And so in Paul writing to Timothy in Ephesus, he is addressing what is going on in Ephesus. And the more we, we learn about Ephesus, the more we understand that that city had a major shrine to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. This was the, the, the Roman and Greek gods of fertility. And this was a, a female cult, where women were the priestesses, where, where it was women who, who ran the show in this religion. And so for many who were being saved out of this kind of pagan context and, and becoming followers of Jesus, their assumption is that, well, maybe it should be women who are in leadership who take the helm of things. But in this letter that Paul's writing to Timothy where he's saying we need to be careful of false teaching, he's saying that no, it's, it's not appropriate for those women to assume authority and teach. In fact, the, the word here, assume authority, is quite watered down. It, it's, it's probably better used to uh, usurp authority, to kind of grab authority over men. It's also important for us to understand, in light of this false teaching, 
that this is a culture where literacy among men was much, much higher than literacy among women. And he brings in this Adam and Eve story to flesh that out for us. I've read this passage for years, and I'm always like, what's with the whole Adam was formed first thing? Is that Adam was was made first by God, and so Adam gets to be like the ruler and Eve is subordinate to him? No, because we read that God created humanity in his image, male and female, he made them. But when we look back at the Adam and Eve story, Adam was created first. God gave Adam the command, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam got the direct command from God. Then we read that Eve was formed from Adam's rib, right, in the story? Adam would have been the one who relayed to Eve secondhand, this is what the command is from God. We read in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent comes on the scene, who does he target? He targets Eve. And we read that she was deceived. And in fact, even how she talks about the command that God gave them, she's not exactly right about it. She says that even if we touch it, we'll die, which was never part of God's command. And the serpent deceives her. Now, this isn't saying that, okay, women are more easily deceived than men. Many have used this passage and, and, and used that as the justification of it. No, this is saying that Adam was the one, he's the one who learned from the first-hand source the command. Eve only got it second-hand, and she was the one deceived because of that. Think about being in the first century in Ephesus where you are going to be a teacher of the church, but you can't read. You are not getting your your content, you are not getting the teachings of, of Jesus and of the prophets of the Old Testament firsthand. You're receiving them secondhand because you're you're hearing them from someone else, and then you're expected to teach. When they are combating false teaching in Ephesus, they're saying, listen, right now it's, it's these men that can read, so they should probably be the ones teaching. Because we don't want, you know, go back to Adam and Eve where he had the original source and she was, you know, secondhand knowledge from him. To be able to go back to the source is essential in teaching. That's why we preach from the texts of Scripture. What's this whole thing with being saved through childbearing? This is the weirdest part. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with propriety. Some people thought, well, maybe, you know, if women are having kids, then they'll stay out of trouble. Maybe people have read this in ways of saying, well, they will be saved through childbearing, meaning... Childbearing at, at that time was, was difficult and dangerous and women will be, you know, helped through it by God. But I think it's deeper than that. This is a picture of Jesus' reverse of the curse that we're talking about. 
Back in Genesis 3, remember when God was, was saying this is the reality of sin in the world right now where, where you will be ruled by your husband? Well, God pronounces a curse on the serpent that deceived Eve. And he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Part of God's promise in light of sin coming in is that the serpent would be defeated. The great deceiver's head would be crushed by the offspring of the woman. What we read in 1 Timothy 2 is this reference to being saved through childbearing is echoing all the way back to this. Where there would be a child who is born, who who comes into the world through the lineage of the woman. And that he would be the great serpent slayer. He would be the one, though his his, his heel is struck by the, the serpent, he would crush his head. We believe that this gets played out in Jesus. The one who was born to the woman. The one who gave his life on the cross, who was bitten on the heel by the serpent, so to speak. But in his resurrection, he defeats death and takes on the curse himself. He crushes the head of the serpent. This is the good news, is that Jesus reverses this curse. He takes on the curse on the cross and overcomes it for both men and for women. And so for you and I, as as those who are seeking to live out this good news in our lives, we take our cue from Jesus and how He lived and how He treated women. We remember that human beings, both male and female, are created in the image of God. That both men and women are welcome to be part of Christ's family. And that baptism is for both. That the gospel, that God's Christ's body broken and blood shed, isn't just for male heads of the household, as it was in the Old Covenant, but is for both men and women to experience the full life that Christ offers. I want to turn your attention to the bread and the cups before you on the table. This meal that we celebrate as an act of worship reminds us of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, where in his last supper he said, this is my body which is broken, this is my blood that is spilled for you. In one of the gospel accounts, when he lifts up the cup, he says, this is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. The new agreement, the new relationship between God and humanity because of my blood. No longer is it circumcised men who can come to the temple and make sacrifices. The new covenant is one where men and women together are welcomed. Welcomed to come into Christ's family. Baptism was the sign of coming in. Celebrating communion, this breaking of bread and drinking of the cup, is a sign of renewing and continuing this relationship with Christ. So this morning, I want to invite you, if you 
have received Christ's gospel for yourself. If Christ is your king, if you've been welcomed into his family, I invite you to grab the bread and to break it and to share a piece with those who are sitting with you at your table. And in eating this bread, we are remembering that Christ's body on the cross was broken for you and for me. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And after the supper, he took the cup. Wine in his case, grape juice in ours. He said, this is my blood. New covenant. A new covenant in my blood. Let's drink in remembrance of him. Jesus, it's both through your example and through your life given that we see the the hope that there is for both men and women as partners in Christ, as those equal in your mission, as images of God, to walk together in the life that you've called us to. You help us to stay firmly rooted in the, the strong foundation we have of how we see men and women relating together. May we be able to affirm the giftedness of both men and women in the work that you've called them to do. And may we be a church that displays the way that your spirit has filled both men and women to be a part of the mission that you have sent us on to make disciples. To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and to welcome them into your family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.